Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Alenka Zupancic about her recent book, What is Sex?, published by MIT Press 2017. First, I'll uh, briefly introduce her. Uh, Dr. Zupancic is a Slovene philosopher and social theorist. She received her PhD from the University of Ljubljana and from the University of Paris 8. She works as research advisor at the Institute of Philosophy, uh, which is part of the Scientific Research Center of the Slovene Academy of Sciences, and is professor at the graduate school there, as well as the European Graduate School. Together with Slavoj Žižek and Mladen Dolar, Alenka is one of the most prominent members of the Ljubljana School of Psychoanalysis. She's one of the uh, Slovenian troika, as I like to call them. She's she's notable for her work on the intersection of philosophy and psychoanalysis, as well as her original uh, theory of comedy, on the topic of which uh, I I had the pleasure of hearing her give a lecture at Duke University in about maybe 2015. I don't know if you remember that one, but... Her books have uh, been translated into many languages, and her most recent work deals with the relationship between sexuality and ontology, as we'll discuss shortly. In addition to the book uh, we'll be talking about today, Dr. Zupancic is the author of The Odd One In on Comedy by MIT Press, 2008, Why Psychoanalysis, Three Interventions, NSU Press, 2008, The Shortest Shadow, Nietzsche's Philosophy of the Two by the MIT Press, uh, from that's from 2003, and finally, Ethics of the Real, Kant and Lacan, published by Verso in 2000 and 2011. Alenka, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anna, for this exhaustive introduction. I'm really pleased and happy to be here and to have this opportunity to uh, discuss my book here with you today. And yes, I do remember this occasion at Duke. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and so I was yeah, uh, speaking on comedy then and working on this subject. Yes, yes. It's it's my pleasure to have you on. Okay, so let's begin with some uh, biography. Uh, please tell us a bit about yourself, specifically, you know, what led you to psychoanalysis um, and than to writing a book about the meaning of sex? Uh, Yeah, I kind of discovered psychoanalysis uh, rather soon in my life. I was still in high school when I started reading some Freud's text and also some first uh, uh, translations of uh, Lacan, which already appeared then in uh, Slovenia. Uh, There was a very lively intellectual scene also at that time in the 80s which was uh, very much inspired not only by Lacan, but uh, very much by him and some other important figures of the 
French uh, contemporary philosophy and psychoanalysis. Uh, so I was somehow caught into this uh, vortex of uh, uh, ideas that were to some extent or to a large extent related to psychoanalysis. And this was precisely, I mean, my question at that time was, what did all these people that were talking about psychoanalysis study? And the answer then was philosophy, because there was no other way to get in touch even with uh, some of these ideas. Uh, so I decided at that point that I would study philosophy, but uh, my studying philosophy was always very much influenced or curved by the fact that Lacan and Freud and some others were kind of a central references of my work and of my studies. Uh, so it was in this sense, although I did study philosophy both in Ljubljana and in Paris, it was always with people who were also, let's say, um, good authorities on psychoanalysis, at least from this theoretical, of course, uh, point of view. Uh, so I was working with both all the time. So I have some clinical experience, but this was like, let's say, for private purposes. I was in analysis for uh, for some years, but this was never meant to be something like a psychoanalytic training. So I have some experience, but I don't think this is even very much of a relevance here. What is perhaps of relevance is the fact that I've always considered uh, that psychoanalysis, as discovered by Freud and then kind of led forward by Lacan, was an event that also to some extent happened to philosophy. Namely in the sense that philosophy cannot simply go on as if nothing happened here. That there was something in relationship also to some fundamental philosophical interrogations that could not be simply or should not be simply overlooked. This was uh, very much my conviction. Mm -hmm. And you you participated in, in reading groups or you went to lectures? Was there a kind of... Yes, of course. I mean, all kinds of uh, uh, lectures, uh, reading groups. I mean, in Slovenia, there were not so many lectures, actually. There were, but I, I kept meeting with, pe meeting with people who were part of this uh, circle. So we would meet and discuss things. In Paris, of course, I went to also to many, many, many lectures in psychoanalysis, not only in philosophy. So because the, the there is this open access to the intellectual uh, landscape that was there uh, also still when I was there. So it's. Uh, um, I did hear a lot of things, and of course, yeah, as I said, I read a lot of things, I studied, I discussed uh, them in this sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a little bit <laughs> to the writing of the book. What inspired the book about the uh, meaning of sex, which is very quite is quite fundamental to, I mean, I realize that it's fundamental to everything Lacan certainly ever said. <laughs> so please tell yeah, us. I definitely, mm -hmm. I definitely think that it is probably the most fundamental question or issue uh, in psychoanalysis. And this is precisely how I approached it. And this is also why I really took time in writing this book. I mean, I was working on this theme, on this question, roughly for 10 years. I did other things at the same time, but uh, I did not want to rush things too, too much here because I really thought that there are some fundamental issues particularly concerning also the relationship between uh, philosophy and ontological interrogation and psychoanalysis uh, and its way of interrogating these things that were at stake and that uh, so it was uh, the more I I mean I did write uh, a lot on psychoanalysis and philosophy before and I did notice that to some extent 
in also in other books, in Ethics of the Real, in the book on Nietzsche and in on comedy, I did keep, I kept returning or circling around certain fundamental questions that I somehow briefly addressed there, but not to my complete satisfaction, so to say. That there were some really fundamental questions that remained open. And I think this book is actually an attempt to kind of supply at least some of these answers, answers, yeah, conceptualizations of these fundamental questions. And perhaps part of this is that uh, for me, sexuality, as conceived by psychoanalysis or as it uh, functions in psychoanalysis, is not simply some uh, descriptive name of some naughty practices or something like this, but is a concept. And it is a concept that formulates, I would say, a certain persisting contradiction of reality, of our reality. And this is where its interests come from. It's not simply that uh, it is more or less uh, funny, juicy details about our our life. It is also, I think, if we simply start talking about sexuality on this uh, level um, of describing some things we never get uh, nowhere, because then you have all hundreds of these kind of questions that keep popping up. But what exactly is this already sex or not? Is cigar only a cigar, or is it? I mean, immediately you get pulled into some kind of proliferation of undecidability. But then you have to, I think, turn this around and say this is precisely because sexuality itself constantly negotiates some uh, in the, uh, undecidability. So. It, in this way, I kind of turned the tables around and really started uh, interrogating uh, sexuality as an ontological problem. That is to say, as a problem in psychoanalysis, that it is not simply a problem of, yeah, for that uh, doing, but a problem of uh, some, uh, as I said before, a fundamental contradiction of our reality that gets articulated only or particularly through uh, sexuality, through what we perceive as sexuality in its link with the unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so yeah. You, you kind of answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, but I, maybe you can elaborate what sex is yeah. for you. Uh, moving from the idea that, um, or getting deeper into this idea that it is an ontological impasse or problem. And also... You know, from that to what, if anything, does it have to do, if anything? I mean, yeah, with the, your concept in your conception with genital or infantile sexuality, because in the book, I should say this too that, and it should be pretty clear maybe by now, there are no, there are no body parts or pleasurable acts in the book. If you're going there for <laughs> penises, vaginas, breasts, you know, it's like nothing. <laughs> So, but but there are some breasts. <laughs> There's a little is, bit of yeah. discuss Christianity yeah, and partial object that proliferate there, but yeah, not in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. That's I don't want to. I I exaggerated slightly. <laughs> um, but but I you know I think it's still important to maybe theorize uh, theorize the relationship between the sex that you're talking about and this more kind of pedestrian or you know quotidian understanding. Of, of sex. So, so maybe you can say a little bit more and kind of talk about what it does have, if anything, to do with human sexuality as we normally think about it. 
Yes, no, what you just pointed out is absolutely crucial. And this also came up in some of the discussions that I already had uh, in relationship to this book. I remember at some point somebody said, but in this way, you take all the fun out of sex. But precisely, this is the achievement. I mean, this is the kind of, uh, I'm proud of this. Precisely because it's not, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have fun having sex, but this is not about this. This is precisely about, uh, if you kind of tackle this from the psychonetic point of view, what needs uh, a certain interrogation is precisely how we um, how this kind of satisfaction and fun that we can have pull us pulls us into a certain logic with or without our will or consent. So, but what happens here in my investigation, in my inquiry, is actually something rather different. It is a kind of a very much as it is already in Lacan about formulas, about things like this. And I just remembered something that I think even I mentioned in the book that also uh, Alain Badiou, when he was explaining some of these Lacanian uh, notions and the, 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 the notion of love, and he also used all these formulas. And afterwards, a journalist uh, wrote a report of this uh, lecture, and he said that this is just, this took all the, uh, yeah, the juicy, fleshy part away from uh, from love, from sexuality, and that probably, but you, when he makes love to a woman, he doesn't say to her, "I love you," like je t'aime, but uh, je te m'attends, which would be "I formalize you" or something <laughs> like this. Which is uh, kind of a um, funny um, um, wordplay. I threw "matem." This really works in, in in French, but anyway, this is very much part of I think uh, what. Uh, is there already in Lacan. It is not uh, there, this psychoanalytic theory is not there so that we would uh, enjoy sex some more. It is not a, a sexology. It is not, a, um, these are not advices about how to get uh, um, yeah, more fun out of it. It is really, it really tackles some of the, uh, the tries to um, define the configuration which defines us in this, on this level, the, the level of sexuality. And now if I uh, return to the other part of your question, why I think what I said before that, uh, that sexuality is about all a concept of a certain contradiction of reality, we can, for instance, say that there, if there is on one level, there is the what we call signifying order or simply language or speech or discourse uh, as this kind of symbolic um, network, uh, but then there is also, on the other side, and inseparable from it, there is this enjoyment, this jouissance, this what Lacan calls surplus enjoyment. Precisely, it is always uh, surplus. It is always too much. It is never just the right measure like pleasure. It is always something that goes a little bit beyond. But it is enjoyment. It is, uh, and it is not uh, signifying. It is not in the same. It is not symbolic. But at the same time, it is inseparable. From the symbolic, and I would perhaps one of the simplest definition of sexuality is precisely that sexuality is what kind of uh, configures together these two things which are heterogeneous and inseparable at the same time: uh, surplus enjoyment and the signifying structure. Uh, sex is never simply about uh, purely bodily enjoyment because all these even parts of bodily enjoyment are usually already included into some signifying network which allows them 
to gain their autonomy. For instance, very often there is a pleasure, but for this pleasure to become this really independent, autonomous, self-seeking activity, like in the case of the drive, there needs to be, there is a certain signifying support there, even if this support is the support in what I call a signifying minus or lack, but there is an armature which even only allows for these pleasures to really explode into something which is not simply um, yeah, pleasure, but which is this kind of excessive resource that psychoanalysis also discovered at the very heart of human um, existence. And it is this discomfort, if you will, or this... Um... Yes, and this this maybe gap or uh, inability to name or something like this, that then maybe, would you say, is it covered over by our concept of sexuality, the more pedestrian kind that we're more familiar with? Is this is this basically masking the fact that there is this unnameable or, or uncomfortable, not quite pleasurable, but enjoyable rupture or, or, or fissure? Uh, yeah, this is definitely one thing. One thing that that gets persistently covered in this uh, usage is precisely the uh, the element that does not completely fit in in any kind of uh, uh, whatever, let's say, relational um, configuration. And and this is also why, as you know, one way of putting this in uh, Lacanian term terminology, what is kind of wrong here is this famous formula, there is no sexual relation, which means that simply there is no, no kind of a, uh, obvious uh, um, self-explanatory sexual binary we would have, like something that would uh, go on like or fit each other like a key and a keyhole or something like this, and that this would then account for sexual relations. No, our relations, as far as they involve sexuality, are precisely defined by the fact that this does not exist, which does not mean that we don't have relationships. Obviously, we do have relationships, but these relationships are already um, uh, predicated upon or um, founded upon this very lack of this direct uh, complementarity or uh, relation. So they, this is why they always include to, to, to return to this previous discussion, a certain signifying armature where precisely the complementary signifier is missing, but at its place, this surplus enjoyment appears with which we also tackle. So this kind of how to, uh, um, to make this uh, square circle, so to say, a function, this is precisely what relations are then very much uh, about. But uh, there is this, uh, and this is also what this kind of negativity, the fact that there is no sexual relation, so to say, so to say is also what is very often uh, covered up, as you put it, or obliterated by this usual, um, yeah, street level of speaking about it, which is basically means that it we, if we just enumerate features of men and women, we can come so as far as to say, okay, but these relationships, they, ne they never work. But this is not what uh, Lacan meant when he says there is no sexual relationship. He says no sexual relationship is precisely what configures the space within which, of course, there are relationships and some of them do work. I mean, it's not <laughs> right. right. I, I do want to return to the non-relation or relationship, but uh, first, I just kind of want to um, flesh out some things that you're, you're, you're even... Yes gesturing toward. Um, you make the point in, in the book that in Lacan's theory, uh, 
the real isn't simply something out there existing prior to language or um, and or external to language. Instead, the real mm-hmm. is constituted with, this is really important, it's constituted with the signifier, as is the sexual. Mm-hmm. And you also explain that the signifier, this is I love, enters the signified. Um, mm-hmm. So can you say something uh, <laughs> reassuring maybe to our Laplanchian materialist listeners or some, d- does the enigmatic message have materiality? Does the unconscious have materiality? Are we going to forego uh, the material yeah. or do we, how do we grapple with it? No, I think here I would have um, two, not really two answers, but like two answers on two different levels. One is uh, the the one that you mentioned, which I think is very, very, really crucial uh, to point out, particularly since even we even have in some early Lacan this idea of the real as something that is uh, outside the outside the language and that was lost, so to say, once the language appeared. And now we can only, with some extreme experiences or, or uh, ordeals, kind of force our passage through uh, through it, to the to, to this real. Um, uh, so this is, I would say, this kind of a more traditional, also philosophically speaking, more traditional idea where language is conceived as a kind of a symbolic net that we put on the world, on the things, which then kind of get mediated through this language and disappear as the real thing uh, that was once there behind. But then very early on, uh, I guess already with this um, magistral definition of, uh, of the signifier, Lacan actually changed this completely. You know, if you just uh, take this uh, famous formulation that signifier is what represents a subject for another signifier, this is really baffling. I mean, this reverses completely this idea that we spontaneously have the signifier is some symbolic sign, let's say a word, which represents a thing, an object or an idea for the subject. This is what we uh, kind of tend to think. And here, this completely disappears. And the signifiers are not simply this representative net, but they are part of the word. They are not simply used to refer to the word. They are very much integral part of the world. And here I would now suggest two ways in which we can, uh, could understand this materiality of the signifier. Uh, one is following your conclusion also that there is this, um, uh, that the real now becomes something which is the inherent impasse of the language itself. It is the point when the language itself breaks down, not because it cannot grasp some external external real, but because it is itself ridden by a certain impossibility. The impossible is part of the language itself. Not It's not some uh, external impossibility that language cannot get to. And mm-hmm. in, in this way, then we have a very different concept of the real as precisely the, uh, as also Lacan has these formulas, like impasse of formalization, or the, the impasse contradiction, something that is very much, uh, this is why one needs to be so attentive uh, to the point where uh, in these linguistic structures or structure of speech or discourse, something happens. This, because this indicates not only that there is something 
else at stake, but also that there is a structural problem of the structure itself, which is mm-hmm. being kind of revealed there. So there is, and in this sense, yes, I think that there is a certain materiality of the signifier. There is, I mean, I really like this uh, Laplacian idea of the enigmatic signifier, which I think it's a kind of a perfect um, concept precisely of a certain materiality of a signifier precisely there where there is no content because this is part of the idea it is the the unconscious itself enters as something real with these enigmatic signifiers it enters as it's not that unconscious does not start with the first thing we repress the idea there with these enigmatic signifiers that like we as children get bombarded with is precisely that the unconscious is kind of invasive, that it kind of invades our space and comes with the, because with the structure of language that we hear speaking around us, we also inherit what in this very structure is missing or its own impasse. We don't simply uh, uh, inherit all that is there. We also inherit something that is not there and that this structure kind of revolves around all the time. So this would be my reading of this, uh, what is the, uh, the the unconscious is out there in the sense that there is a certain level of repression that is already operative on the, uh, on the level of the structure of the speech of language itself. Yeah, so, but this question of the materiality of the signifier also has another dimension, I think, which is very much a part of our, of the discussions that are recently going on in, not only in philosophy, but uh, also in science and so on. Uh, namely, we could ask ourselves, how does it relate to what we are hearing today um, about this notion of um, Anthropocene? Uh, because if you think about what exactly is Anthropocene, it is defined as uh, an epoch where man has become a geological factor. But man or humanity is a very uh, kind of um, loose term. And I think a very more, much more precise way of putting it would be to say that uh, Anthropocene is the point where discourse or signifier becomes a geological factor. Because it is not simply by our human existence that uh, something like the whole ecosystem could be uh, really changed to, to such an extent, or that even geologically it makes sense of speaking of some of this difference, but precisely because signifiers and how we work with them, how science works with them, uh, have consequences, direct consequences in the real. And I don't know, Lacan had this example of uh, man landing on the moon simply based on certain calculus and formula that were uh, that were manipulated in the right way, which is actually a very good example, I think, of how signifier is not simply representative. It can bring us to the moon to some extent, which is a kind of uh, epochal event in itself. And in this sense, also the, the, the whole theory which Lacan has of science is precisely that uh, it is not simply about the real world outside. It is the, the, the formulas are directly kind of manipulating the real outside. And, and I think this is important because very often also in philosophy today, there is this um, current that uh, this new realism, uh, which uh, 
to, to put it in a very simple way, um, aims at supposedly breaking out of the discursive cage, as it is formulated. So we, are, we have this discourse, we are trapped into this cage, and we cannot get out of it to the real, to the real as it is, to the real world, and so on. But I think what the, this notion of Anthropocene shows is precisely that the discourse itself has already broken out of itself. It is more than it is always more than just a discourse in this simplified sense of understanding it. And I think this is precisely what Lacanian theory enables us to see, to grasp the discourse, the signifier, not simply as something that stands like facing the reality or the real, but something that is in a very paradoxical sense, but nevertheless very much part of this real or is able to touch it in some way. This is, yeah, you have a lot to say in the book uh, about the new materialism. Yeah, there is a chapter which uh, kind of, uh, uh, yeah, tell us what I'm now very briefly resuming in a much more detailed way. But I think there is an, because I think this is an interesting question. I'm not dismissing it. I think it is, was very important that it was uh, put on the table. Uh, but I also think that uh, psychoanalysis has here some very interesting uh, answer or approach, which precisely kind of interrupt this uh, uh, the opposition between nominalism and realism, and it kind of uh, transposes this discussion in a much more interesting way. Yeah. So I, I love your discussion um, of the the human as unfinished animal, and this is in relation to what maybe what you were just saying, or it has some bearing on what you were saying. So I, I, I I'm curious um, what you meant by this precisely. Um, it's actually, and if it relates to one of your chapter subheadings, which was, you know, where do adults come from? <laughs> so, so what precisely is, is what precisely is in the human? I mean, this is the question here that is less than animal. Uh, no, because I think, I, th I think the common assumption is that we have something in excess. Uh, but here you're making, you're making a very interesting point that it's actually, um, that there's something unfinished about us as animals that creates our humanity. Uh, yes, I think there is a way in which one could uh, turn around a little bit this, uh, um, yeah, more uh, commonly told story about how, uh, yeah, humanity actually brings something uh, more uh, or is this precisely excessive uh, element um, in contrast to nature or animality and so on. Uh, and my point is here not simply to deny this, but to say that this excess is actually uh, already a symptom of a certain minus or of precisely the fact that we are not even fully animals. It is not that we are, first we are, uh, the, the idea is that, that there is this kind of fundamental basis or of animality and then the human is also something more than this uh, uh, animal biological however you call it uh, substance uh, which with language and so on becomes uh, develops some excessive or whatever creational dimension uh, but here the idea is precisely that that, that no that, uh, that the whole story of the human starts with, if to put it into this mythological perspective, perhaps with something, let's say one signifier gone missing from the nature, let's say. There is a there is something that and it is at that point that the whole 
machinery starts to run, that the signifiers only start to refer to each other via this gap, via this lack, via this. Uh, there is the, the, the very movement of the signifying chain can only run uh, if there is no, there is the mapping does not happen in this kind of a supposedly natural, direct way, immediate way. So the fact that there is this kind of a uh, disappearance or um, minus, which is not simply zero, it is something uh, precisely less than zero, uh, which actually accounts for the appearance of the whole story of the surplus and the excess, and that the, the humanity is obviously very much uh, into uh, also. Uh, but that we should uh, actually look um, or take these two levels at the same time and together as precisely one and the same thing, and not simply uh, starting from this kind of a more Aristotelian uh, approach when we would say, okay, first we are animals, and then we are also something a little bit more, which is then human and so on. Uh, because I think another point related to this that I also make in the book is also that this leads us to, to another interesting idea, namely that man is not, or humans are not simply the opposite of animals or nature, nor are they simply, nor are we simply one of the animals, which is also this kind of a now very uh, fashionable, modest claim, but we are just a different kind of animal. Yes, we are a different kind of animal, but we are a differently different kind of animal in the sense in which, uh, this is at least strong philosophical claim that I make in the book, that humanity, with humanity, there is a certain contradiction of the nature itself, which starts to exist as such. Like humanity itself is the existence of the contradiction of the nature or animality itself. So there is this kind of a yeah, philosophical, ontological move that says even animality or nature with the capital letters do not exist. It, it, this is why they are not the other of men. They are already inconsistent, inherent. It's not the, the, this idea that as opposed to our self, nature is this completely uh, rash, rational or natural system that perfectly functions, that has no inherent contradictions, just everything runs as it should. This is a completely erroneous idea that we over, often project from our perspective. So the, here the idea is rather that, no, nature itself is already ridden by many contradictions and antagonisms, but they only become uh, antagonisms or contradictions that we can actually see, address, speak about with hu humanity incarnating this very contradiction. Appearing uh, at the very point of, so it is, uh, it is an animal which kind of uh, embodies the very contradiction of being animal. So it is, uh, or that brings forward the very contradiction of animality as such. This would be one way of putting it, that human animal is not one of the animals, nor the other of the animal. It is the animal that brings forth the very contradiction of animality as such, or, or nature as such. This would be the, the kind of yeah, philosophical uh, claim. Uh, and so, again, the, the relationship between the two is um, more interesting than one being the other of the other, or simply this kind of idea of a close totality and then uh, uh, access that comes on top of this totality. No, the access only arrives because this totality never was a totality. Well, how does this, to bring this back a little bit to a psychoanalytic position, um, explicitly psychoanalytic position. Why, I mean, is this then 
what is the unconscious then? Is this, um, in your thinking, also this minus, or one can say maybe it's both excess of meaning and minus? Um, why and and why? Furthermore, is it always um, bound up with surplus enjoyment uh, or set or with sex? Why? I mean, why call it? And and furthermore, maybe this is like the third part three of the question. Why call it sex? And not say just enjoyment or a gap or I mean why why insist on this kind of on this signifier you know <laughs> or and the sexual yeah sexual yeah precisely because I think there is a difference between enjoyment or pleasure or bodily pleasure and sexuality and uh, this difference and this brings us to the beginning of I think this uh, this interview when I said that uh, uh, we are all the time like uh, inhabiting or uh, at the same time two things uh, or dealing with two things. There is the signifying structure and there is the surplus enjoyment. And sexuality is not simply on the side of the surplus enjoyment. It is precisely what brings forward the inseparability of these two things, the symbolic order and the surplus enjoyment in their very heterogeneity. So it is... Uh, and I think that and this is precisely why I say that it kind of formulates the, this concept of sexuality in a psychoanalysis formulates a certain contradiction of reality because reality precisely is what uh, is neither simply one nor the other. Reality cannot be reduced simply to the signifying chain, uh, to the symbolic description, nor can be simply reduced to, to a kind of purely... Um, non-signifying bodily enjoyment because this enjoyment, this surplus enjoyment already is uh, or depends upon uh, or as I put it in the book, appears at the very place where something is lacking in this signifying structure. So this is the way how conceptually I kind of link the two, that enjoyment does not appear just anywhere. That uh, structurally, the, the, the structural place in the other when where it appears is precisely this minus. And I think, moreover, this explains why in Lacan, uh, why Lacan can insist that the other, this concept of the other the, with capital O, uh, can be, uh, he insists that it is both the other of enjoyment and the other of the signifying structure, which is which are for him always two heterogeneous things. But this is precisely the reason because it is at the very point in the other where the signifier is lacking, enjoyment appears. Uh, so there is, a, at least this is how I kind of uh, formulate this, uh, there is a kind of topological coincidence of the signifying minus and of the surplus jouissance, which does not simply appear somewhere else, but is circulates precisely around this uh, minus. And so if we try to separate these two, as it is often and very also fashionable today, and say, okay, let's not talk about uh, sex, let's just talk about uh, pleasures, uh, body, or on, on the other hand, of course, about the symbolic order, about identity. This, this is very interesting because in this way you get to genders, to, you get to identities, but sexuality disappears. Uh, this is clearly what the move from sexual difference to gender differences is clearly the move from sexuality, which as some 
signifier disappears in this plurality of identities. But I claim that these are two very different levels precisely because sex is not about identity. Sex is about precisely what disrupts our identity, uh, what makes it impossible to have any kind of kind of sexual identity. I think is perhaps even kind of a contradiction in terms, uh, because it is kind of it, sex precisely tackles the point where two things which are in principle incompatible, like the signifying structure and the enjoyment, appear in one. Uh, in one object or in one signal, in one form, and this is precisely when why it does not why articulates together these two things. And yeah, now this brings me back to the first part of your question, which was about the unconscious, uh, which for me is precisely part of the signifying structure as such, and. Uh, here, I don't know if this is uh, not too, too, too technical, perhaps, uh, but you know that there is in Freud, there is this hypothesis that he introduces at some point, hypothesis of a primal repression. That is to say that before there is any uh, like um, repression in the usual sense of the word, there is already some repression going on. And so how to understand this? And uh, Lacan actually read this precisely in this sense, that there is a certain repression uh, that is pertaining to the signifying structure as such, and that invades us, so to say, with the speech of the others, which, which is not necessarily our, this is not our unconscious, but it is also our unconscious. It's, it's not that our unconscious can be so simply separated from this structural uh, gap or minus, which is the, uh, the kind of the unconscious that is uh, already out there, not as some kind of a positive archetypal unconscious, but as a gap, as a minus, as something which kind of attracts, so to say, further repression as well. So and where subject finds a kind of topological structure that fits uh, repression as such. So, and the the point uh, I mean in all this is that sexuality is precisely the concept that relates in psychoanalysis uh, this question of the unconscious, of the signifying structure, and so on, of this structural minus or impasse to the question of the surplus enjoyment, to the question of pleasure, to the question of precisely as the sexuality means that they are ontologically in the very non-relation that is there's uh, absolutely, the, the, there is no relation, but at the same time, they coincide at the same topological place. So they're one and the same, but at the same time, completely different. And this is the, uh, this is the very core, let's say, of, of the issue and of the problem. And the attempt to se separate them neatly was, if we look at this from this perspective, for instance, I discussed at some uh, point at the book, the whole um, way in which Christianity goes about it, it is precisely not at all as we sometimes think that Christianity goes against this uh, polymorphous, perverse uh, pleasure subject. No, it doesn't go against it. Corporality and corporal pleasures are very much part of a Christian imaginary and doctrine. What is absolutely forbidden is the link of, of this whatever bodily uh, martyrly uh, object with sexuality. So we can have, the, the, as for instance, this is also what happens very often when we speak uh, of the Freudian concept of infantile sexuality. Uh, the question there is, okay, we can understand that uh, a child who transform, who kind of switches yeah. from enjoying food to sucking its tongue, 
uh, did kind of accomplish certain kind of automatization of, of a pleasure, which is now uh, embodied in this uh, gesture of, uh, of sucking the thumb or something else. Uh, and then, but why would this be sexual? Why this is simply a pleasure, but it has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with sex if we understand sex in the in the in the meaning of a sexual yeah relationship. But it has all to do with the sex if we uh, understand sex as partly uh, um, pertaining precisely also to the signifying structure that made this shift from enjoying the food to enjoying just the sucking of the thumb possible. And precisely this is the claim that, uh, that already Lacan makes very clearly. In this passage to the autonomy of the pleasure, what happened in between is precisely the intervention of the signifier, which enabled, first of all, the, the demand to be separated from the need, but then also this kind of additional self-perpetuating activity uh, becomes possible because it is already part of a certain even if the child does not yet speak or that, but it's already kind of bad in the in this um, uh, discursive um, uh, right. it, can be it can be conjured yes precisely and so and so to, to say that uh, children are sexual beings does not mean that they are they want they want to have sex obviously not i mean I did not claim anything like this. Uh, what he said is simply that there is no way in which we could simply say that sexuality originates in our, let's say, um, uh, urge or imperative to reproduce and have children, which would be then what the explanation of the sexual drive. Uh, it does not happen like this. It happens uh, much sooner, uh, before even any sexual uh, organs are mature or before we have any kind of... I think I lost you again. No, I have you. Uh -huh, okay, because my screensaver appears. Okay, uh, so <laughs> uh, so this is uh, part of the. This was always what was I think very problematic between uh, very problematic in the Freudian notion of uh, infantile sexuality was not simply the idea that children enjoy, but that this enjoyment would have anything to do with, with what we otherwise call sexuality. This was always the traumatic point. And I think it right. still is. And there are some contemporary theories and um, yeah, uh, philosophies and which kind of try and persist on this, insist on this, that uh, why put precisely the question is why call this sex? I mean, Foucault again is one of these uh, prominent philosophers who kind of claimed that um, surplus enjoyment was, of course, not the scandal. This was the kind of, uh, uh, or it was the scandal. The sex was not the scandal, but the sex was already a kind of pacification of the scandal involved in surplus enjoyment. Um, so how biopolitical move you you have the enjoyment which are in itself kind of um, uh, subversive and then you associate them with sex and now this, they become part of this uh, biopolitical control of sexuality and so on. Uh, but I think here something really gets lost if we make this move because uh, the question is for me also why does sexuality demand this? Uh, regulation, this uh, constant uh, occupation with itself, which is clearly there, just constant regulation. Why? Because we usually think that we know, yeah, because it is sexuality. No, no, but why? I mean, and this is precisely what I what I want to go 
into in my book, to, to insist on this question that uh, we very often take this ban on sexuality to be self-explanatory. Yes, of course, it's a ban because it's sexuality. No, but why? I mean, and, and here it only becomes, if we dig a little bit deeper into this question, it becomes clear that what all these regulations of sexuality, uh, all these prohibitions and uh, yeah, ritualization of it are all about or uh, are about to hide or obfuscate is not simply something there is there in the sexual in display on it, like sexual organs or some debauchery of whatever kind, but some much more problematic ontological scandal, namely they mask something which is not there, in something in sexuality which is not there and which, if it were there, would make yeah everything much simpler and more uh, transparent, so to say, uh, but and and I think this is a very interesting uh, question, precisely how to, uh, if from this point of view one then looks at some of these uh, obsessions, regulations of uh, also of course feminine sexuality and so on, which uh, which always try to uh, hide again, uh, to put it like this, not simply something that would be disturbing in itself, but precisely something which is disturbing because uh, it is. Uh, not there what we see. Yeah, let's say there is this image of naked bodies. We could say, why do we need to cover them? Uh, is it because uh, we need to cover them because of something that we don't see when we see this image of the naked bodies, men and women standing together? And what we don't see in this image is precisely, we could say, the sexual relation. We don't see this. We see... Uh, what is so scandalous about? I mean, this is a very interesting question, and as you know, I um, then have this. Uh, I found this very nice story about the, the Adam's navel and this uh, what needs to be covered on top of the sexual organs. Uh, so, because I, I really think if one goes into some research here, one finds very interesting things about what really is disturbing in sexuality. I heard. Uh... An analyst say again last week, and I hear this every few weeks, it seems that um, neurotics, especially hysterics, have all but disappeared, you know, from consulting rooms. And we mostly treat like borderlines now, narcissists. And I'm not sure what is happening here. You know, if if we're now calling hysterics borderline or it's that certain character disorders are more common today. But but my my thought is my thought is this, that um, that we and by we, I mean maybe Lacanians, I don't know. We know that hysterics are the ones who demonstrate the non-coincidence of truth and knowledge that they know about the desire of the other masquerade, you know, precisely by sexuality. They ask these ontological questions. So um, so maybe this is, I'm thinking like, wh what would you make of this erasure of the hysteric and, and her increasing pathologization? It's, it's, it, it strikes me that it's maybe precisely to cover this up again. That, that the hysteric kind of exposes some of these countries, or at least asks the questions that would lead to such an exposure. Uh, no, I think there is a very significant change or shift uh, that is taking place and that you are des uh, describing. And I'm not completely sure whether this has to do with the way one listens or one practices psychoanalysis or with some kind of a... Uh, uh, real change in the subjective structures because uh, I'm to some extent at least uh, inclined to say that uh, one that we kind of lost the ear for the hysteric as, as I understood you suggesting also in the sense of that uh, because 
hysterics or neurotics, this for me, it's not the same kind of clinical category as borderline because borderline basically means uh, everything else. <laughs> or, I mean, it's a very much, it does not have the same kind of a precision. And uh, although, okay, perhaps I'm completely wrong. I'm not an analyst dealing directly with these things, but at least when it appeared, this notion, it was more or less describing all that uh, different, the, the things that did not fit uh, so to say, some of the other categories. At least at the beginning, right? At least at the beginning, it was a kind of, uh, yeah, a broad category. Then there were Kernberg and others kind of uh, made it more precise, but yes. But then I'm sure that there is a certain kind of, uh, that there is obviously uh, very much the possibility that with the, 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 the shifts and the change in social structures and in the way the, the social space operates, also the uh, yeah, social space in general, and then of course also these uh, other space, smaller spaces which are part of it, like families and so on, um, did change to such an extent to generate new uh, new uh, subjective structures. And the borderline is um, an attempt to define one of these structures which functions in very much different way than the hysterics did or. Um, um, obsessional neurotics, and although I'm sure that at least obsessional neurotics still exist very much uh, in, the, <laughs> in these days, but you're right about the hysterics. That the, the, it is very rare to, to hear uh, this kind of hysteric voice, which was, uh, on the other hand, the very, uh, the er very origin of psychoanalysis was as if Freud could only hear this kind of voice. I mean, it was so, the, the, the hysterics was precisely um, the the voice that woke him up from his dogmatic slander, to, to paraphrase this famous <laughs> saying from what Kant said in relationship to, to Hume. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it is uh, interesting. And um, I, I think that definitely this also points to something which is, should be at least very obvious, namely that psychoanalysis is never simply a private affair. Uh, it always um, it detects and is part of the, the certain very, very important shift in which our social, economic and so on life is also uh, changing and how these interactions uh, work and to, in what they kind of force out of us, what is the position that they put us into and so on. So it is not simply about any individual unconscious. This it is always part, I mean, this was very much already there. Uh, the emphasis was already there in, in Freud. That this is not simply a individual private affair and this uh, relationship to, to the other, to the symbolic order, to the uh, social order and so on, is a crucial part of any individual neurosis. Although then it can have some very individual particularities, but it is not, it is inseparable of a kind of a uh, more symptom, symptoms of the social space as such. And so in this sense, I think there is probably a lot to say about how uh, our contemporary social space and its, its pathologies, its symptoms are kind of pushing forward or indicating another kind of uh, also kind of uh, individual um, structures and um, pathologies, which precisely are not simply individuals, but are uh, always 
correlated to to the structure between they 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 appear as well. No, I was going I was going to ask you about uh, to link the political and and the uh, and sex and and psychoanalysis, but I think I think you kind of just did that. I, you know, you you gestured toward that very much with your answer. Uh, yeah, this is ex- absolutely what I wanted to say. That uh, uh, there is something intrinsically political about the claims that psychoanalysis makes. It is not simply and the uh, about the, the the sexual such because and this again brings us to the uh, to one of the first question namely the what is sex what is this sexuality why it is such an important uh, point uh, such an important concept uh, because i think one could say uh, for instance if, if freud said um, where there is a problem there is sex this is one way of how we can read freud but the uh, what is behind this assertion is not simply that okay sex is bad or lacking so there is a problem no 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 it is because sex is the very point where some ontological or if you want social problem or impasse is situated and played out it is not it is it names the very juncture of something which uh, is wrong so to say uh, so uh, so and this is why it it makes sense to look at these articulations, uh, not because uh, sex is some deeply intimate thing that then we'll uh, enjoy looking into, but precisely because it is also uh, always uh, the how to put it this kind of very sensitive point in which certain things, certain articulations which are extremely precarious uh, t- take place, and m- many things can be seen and revealed because of this. And so, sex is topologically. Uh, conceptually speaking, topologically situated on, at the precise point where something does not work completely. So, you know, there is, uh, Lacan has this uh, phrase, phrase the uh, speaking of the cause, which of course is also the cause of desire, that cause only exists there with some, where something does not work, you know. Il n'y a de cause que dans ce qui cloche, which is a very nice way of formulating something similar, I think, to what I'm saying. I would tell you, uh, there is no sex que dans something which does not work. And this is not the same thing as to say that sex does not work. It is sexuality is precisely this kind of um, uh, uh, junction of this uh, impossibility. And th- in this sense, it is uh, it is not insignificant that uh, psychoanalysis looking at this juncture was able to produce, suggest many, many, many very interesting things, not only about subjectivity, but also about the social, the political, and so on. So, um, and in this, because it's, one cannot see this kind of, uh, let's say, fundamental antagonism from anywhere. Uh, one has to be situated at a specific point within this antagonism to be able to see it and to hear it. And I think here really the, the lesson of Freud also vis-a-vis the hysterics is really invaluable because already to be able to not only to listen in this uh, kind of a quasi-humanist sense, we need to listen to the others, but about all to hear something else that everybody hears when they listen to hysterics i mean because this was right it's not simply that he listened to them uh, he 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 heard something he heard something else mm-hmm. then was the uh, and this something else then was a major breakthrough in uh, in a, a very very um, vast conceptual uh, landscape the unconscious the, unco- the the concept of the unconscious i mean we we think it's 
sometimes we forget that what is really revolutionary about it is not simply the fact that, okay, we are not conscious of some things. I mean, this is the concept of the unconscious that existed long before Freud. Of course, there are many things that we are not conscious of. But what Freud discovered with the concept of the unconscious is something very different is, first of all, that there is a lot of thinking going on, that this is a process, that it is a work, and that it is much more than simply the question of not being uh, able to, to remember something or know something, but that something actively appears at this place, for instance, links things together. So it is a very... And this, I think, he really was able to, to hear because he, he did not only listen to, uh, to the hysterics, but he also heard... Uh, what they were saying and um, heard it precisely at the disjuncture again, uh, both of the social and uh, individual, uh, as well as on the junction of the other and the question of desire, which is obviously very yes. much in the in, in the foreground of the hysterics, and the question of desire and its incompatibility with resource precisely, which is again very much there for the hysterics. So the, this kind of aversion to, to, to the surplus enjoyment um, and preservation of the purity of this uh, signifying structure of desire. So all this actually appeared there in a way that um, somebody needed to recognize it and Freud did. And I think perhaps we still, I'm not sure if we really discovered any new stru subjective structure on such a fundamental level as, as that, but uh, it can happen. And in this sense, to return to your previous question, I'm not saying that these category, clinical categories are simply the only one that uh, are possible, far from it. So there probably will be new categories appearing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I when you were talking, I, I thought also about, since you mentioned Freud, I, you know, I'm a psychoanalytic candidate and like, like most uh you know, psychoanalytic candidates. I'm in analysis, and I and I therefore ponder and dread uh, what I call the de the desert of the post edipal. <laughs> so, in in the book, you sort of address this because, um, and I I would like to know, you know, what does, I mean, I what does sex or the sexual non relation have to do with the goal of analysis, and also what does you know what does post analytic love look like is is it a, i mean to to go from sex to love is it a love that is without suffering without passion you know are we going to purify love? uh it's 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 a similar question like where's what about all the the fun pleasurable acts what this sex you're talking about is very pure you know sort of formalistic i guess i'm asking you know is a non symptomatic love relationship possible yeah uh, no, I, I definitely think that, uh, I mean, these are two levels, and I think that uh, what uh, is this, the, the book that we are talking about, is a philo philosophical book, and as such, I think it is also very interesting that I to some extent we can say that sex and sexuality is perhaps the, the philosophical problem or question of psychoanalysis, in this sense that it is here that the uh, both in it, traditionally in in this more contemporary way, certain um, metaphysical questions needed to be uh, asked or casted out or whatever. But the, the, there is something there that kind of um, calls for this kind of attention. So yeah, this is uh, in the interrogation here is yeah philosophical in in this sense. But at the same time, no, as as it when it comes to the question of the the end of analysis. I think that, first of all, there is this idea which I really much really support, which is that there is a certain 
shift that happens as Lacan calls it somewhere, I think, in the very moorings of our being. So it is not simply we do something we do change to 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 put it in a very simple way but we do change in a way in which this very change becomes uh, kind of not something that we can um, regret but it, there is very often a problem uh, when it comes in analysis to the point when for this kind of shift to take place one needs to almost let go or of many many things that at that precise point are your source of enjoyment or attachment and so on. So there is definitely this um, moment or not simply moment process in analysis that happens that things that you enjoy at some point, you will probably no longer enjoy later on, let's say, like this, or not in this way. Not in this way. Uh, and this is a, this is interesting because I, I like to use this example um, um, from from Proust, you know, Swan in Love, uh, because there is, I think it's a very nice uh, way in which one can um, kind of illustrate what, for me at least, analysis is, is about. You know, there is this scene uh, um, when the hero is very much in love with Odette, and, but she no longer loves him. So he really suffers terribly and he believes that he wants to be cured of this love, that he wants to be cease to be in love with her so as to escape this suffering that this uh, unfortunate, uh, unhappy love induces in him. But then he himself makes this kind of analysis and, uh, and figures it out that he does not want to cease to be in love with her. He simply wants to uh, this love to be returned so that he could remain the same because he says and there is this really really great sentence uh, which uh, uh, which Proust uses and he says that in the depths of his morbid condition uh, this hero fears death itself more than such a recovery such a getting cured of love because he felt that this would be the death of what he now was of all that he now was this I'm sorry I'm quoting from memory but something like this so, but in, uh, in, I think this is precisely what at some point does happen uh, in analysis, that it does lead to the death of many things that we are when we started. But at the same time, this perspective that there will be anybody on the other end regretting this loss, it's a kind of a false perspective. So uh, it leads somewhere, but then I think that, yes, there there is a possibility of fun or enjoyment, which is not pathological in this way, sense that precisely does not support a certain perpetuation or a certain uh, yeah, pathological structure which necessitate, um, uh, which are there because uh, they are needed in order to perpetuate a certain repression, to put it very simply. Because usually what happens is that it is not simply that why is our enjoyment pathological? It is pathological not simply because it is bad for this or that, but because it is related to another issue. It is uh, it is there because this is the only way for us right. to not, let's say, to, to maintain certain uh, repression there. So, But this does not mean that uh, then if this um, gets disentangled, uh, I think that the, the and this also brings us back to the previous discussion. This does not mean that uh, this structure will simply fall apart and the enjoyment will no longer be possible. I think it will be possible, but in another way, which is uh, which will not 
feel at the same time all these unconscious meanings of sexuality. I mean, which is another kind of obviously pleasure that we, that we can draw from from sexuality. All these sexual innuendos and uh, uh, the right. kind of things that are kind of also a part of of this. So, uh, and I don't know. The question of the end of analysis is for me also a kind of political question, if you want to to some extent, because obviously it is about um, possibility of a let's say a pretty radical change, which nevertheless allows for yeah not only fun and enjoyment, but also probably for a certain kind of social tie. It is not simply that afterwards one explodes in some kind of a uh, individual monad which exists as a perfectly self-contained uh, and satisfied with itself uh, unit. I, I don't think this is the um, this is the the way one should uh, uh, look at it. And I just recently, I was asked in an interview if this is also, the, if the end of analysis is about um, giving up certain hope or certain expectations of certain illusions that uh, as if mm. at the end we should be cured of certain, uh, and I think this is a very interesting question because the, the answer would be at the same time, uh, yes and no. It's clearly at least for me, that uh, psychoanalysis it does not preach any kind of uh, cynical wisdom, you know, that now you know better than to cope for certain things because you know that they're impossible. For instance, this would be one very simple way of uh, putting the end of analysis. Okay, I know this is impossible and now I'm not no longer tormenting myself with it. But this is a kind of simply epistemological move when I think nothing happens in the moorings of our being if we just become disillusioned. I mean, this is not... A, right. All, what happens? So, uh, I think what happens if we kind of uh, uh, play with this um, word of this notion of hope is rather is rather something the. Um, uh, that goes in the other sense, that is to say that it is a certain shift that relieves us of hope. It is not, and that makes it possible uh, to articulate what we hope, hoped about in some other way. Um, and and I, I think that in, 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 the, in this sense, it, this can be condition in which we are only able to engage with the world uh, and not simply with our personal hopes and expectations about this world. And and I okay I suggested this formula, but this is really very uh, much biased by my both philosophical and political um, convictions. That I would say that at the end of the analysis, to some extent, uh, uh, the hope is replaced with courage, courage to fight to do to kind of something different. Wow. I like that very much. Yeah, no, so, I, I, and the whole question of this post-Edipal, uh, I mean, uh, th there is always this double bind to this discussion of post-Edipal, and we are very quickly, we get uh, drawn into this kind of uh, either kind of conservative regretting the good old times where fathers were still fathers and they knew how to make the children, I don't know. I mean, this kind of, a, uh, you get also from psychoanalysts sometimes this kind of limitations, good men, I mean, you need Oedipus to have real men you need, or, real, or whatever, which is obviously a, a gross uh, simplification. And I don't know, and Lacan had this uh, great line that if there was anybody who didn't have the Oedipus complex, it was Oedipus precisely because <laughs> this is what, but okay, then he created it for the rest <laughs> of the community. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, uh, right. That would make sense. So it's uh, there is um, 
I mean, structures, as we were talking about them before, the, the, these uh, so social structures and economical structures, which are obviously part of this, uh, are changing and they are seriously changing. And they are changing because of this um, business as usual progress of certain, uh, yeah, let's call it by the name, uh, capitalist, democratic, liberal, neoliberal, whatever structures. But there is also there are also things that happen and uh, can more punctually affect these structures and, and, and induce certain kind of new symptoms or uh, movement or whatever. So um, in, in this sense, it is obviously... Um, something that is going on which is not simply yeah because the, the structure is not closed upon itself and but this for me is a good sign because it it shows that uh, uh, as opposed to this image of uh, neoliberal capitalism that we often also uh, get as this kind of perfectly smoothly running machine that is able to um, cash in on uh, or kind of assimilate every uh, antagonistic excessive moment immediately and sell it off as just another surplus value. So whatever we do, there is nothing we can do. There is even the most subversive acts are immediately neutralized in some uh, right. way or another. So there is this perspective. But at the same time, if we look at all these new, uh, new symptoms, new pathologies, and I'm not speaking only of the individual ones, but only on the social level, on the level if you want, also of general election and, and contradictions that uh, that accompany all this, it is clear that contradictions are enormous and that they're very much ready to explode one moment or another. So it is this supposedly smooth running, it's not at all so smooth. So there, there are serious contradictions and these points of contradictions are also the possible points of change and of shifting something. Uh, but then, of course, you are obviously, we are already speaking of something else, of a kind of different mm -hmm. level of political organization that is able to uh, to kind of take these contradictions and make something uh, productive out with them, out of them, which is uh, uh, and not simply yeah. trying, uh, hoping that anything, that everything will go to hell, which probably it will sooner or later, but uh, I'm not uh, saying this, that there are problems which we should just let... The, the machine ruin itself and then we can start all over again. Perhaps there will be nothing to start all over again from. So I, I'm not hoping that immediately after the disaster something better appears. It could be even worse. It's this. The, I, I don't think... So we, we do need some idea, we do need some politics and do, we do need, as in analysis, some intervention. I mean, analysis, obviously, it is about the subject that kind of figures it all out, but at the same kind, there is... Uh, this uh, feedback punctuation is absolutely needed in order for one mm. to figure it out what does one really want. And I think this is a dimension of psychoanalysis which is very precious. There is a very important political lesson also uh, because in this um, belief in democracy, there is this kind of uh, belief that uh, people know what they want. But uh, I don't think that it is uh, disappreciative of people to say, no, we don't know always what we want. But there are, there are some political mechanisms and ideas that need to circulate that only make us 
know what we want. So uh, the, there is no this uh, immediacy of uh, our beliefs, of, of our feelings and so on, needs to be interrupted uh, at some point for us to be able to realize what we really want. And instead of this, what we are getting is a kind of a, um, intensification of this uh, immediacy. What I mean is that the, the whole uh, uh, ideology of, yeah, um, Affect, affects feelings and so on is there precisely uh, to to make it impossible for this kind of a uh, I can also put it call it reflective distance to appear to this space with um, uh, um, across which one can actually see realize and think about one does want kind of is no longer there because we are supposed to immediately feel what we want. Yeah, yeah, as if the, the, there is something that would guarantee that these feelings are in themselves uh, most authentic, which which are not necessary. They are not necessarily this. So it's uh, so I think there is obviously one way to of describing this post Oedipal whatever structure uh, without even mentioning the infamous name of Oedipus. It's precisely the fact that there is this um, alienation in the sense of uh, something which we do not know and feel immediately, but which we do know, or which is the truth of what we want. Nevertheless, this kind of uh, non-immediate space of non-immediacy of this uh, um, is disappearing. And the the and, uh, this is another way also of putting the, this diagnosis that uh, public space is disappearing in the sense that it's being replaced with simply screaming of the private affairs. I mean, we could say everything is public now. Of course, you can put it on Facebook, on Twitter, or but this is not what public stage means. I mean, public stage means that there is a certain different level of discussion, and when you say something there, it has a completely yeah. different impact than if you say it in a private conversation. Uh, but now this difference is completely disappearing, and it's been so for, for quite some time. So uh, something is happening in the in the social tissue which goes very much towards some kind of a obviously false, but nevertheless immediatization of our functioning. And this very much deprives us of certain liberty of deciding things about ourselves as well as about the social. And I think one of the things that one should really strive to, 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 to uh, win back is precisely this certain level of distance, of alienation, of non-immediacy within the social, within our feelings, within how we interact uh, with others. And start with this supposition that we not necessarily uh, know or understand or feel each other, but there is a certain space in between, we should be able to uh, enable uh, the circulation of this misunderstanding, and then something can come out. And the strangeness that results, and the recognition of strangeness. Yes, precisely. And the, 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 the strangeness is it, it's not simply the strangeness is usually our own strangeness. I mean, this is also yeah. one of the, uh, the big lessons, I think, of, of Lacan from the ethics of psychoanalysis, that this uh, enjoyment that we hate so much in the other, you know, these usual racist remarks like the other, the, the, the food that they eat smells strangely, the way they have sex is very bizarre, they smell bad and so on. This, this is always some kind of a strange way of enjoyment, but that actually what really bothers us, says Lacan, is not, the, is the fact that their enjoyment is actually 
the, the same as ours. I mean, it is not, it is our own enjoyment that bothers us. It's not theirs. So, and the, if we don't come to some ter to, to terms with this um, enjoyment that kind of uh, nexts us from within and not from this stranger, then uh, this structure cannot be uh, obviously not uh, uh, efficiently dismantled and the, the, the stranger will always embody our our own enjoyment and how we do not want to accept it and deal with it. Because this is another, of course, major lesson of psychoanalysis, that enjoyment is not simply something that everybody wants. Uh, as opposed to, let's say, pleasures, enjoyment defines precisely a certain point where we even most usually don't want to go. It is not uh, it's something that uh, uh, surprises our us or makes us um, do things that we don't necessarily want to do and so on. So it is not uh, simply the the notion of enjoyment, it's not simply this kind of hedonist notion, but it is something that goes also against, I mean, that uh, from within undermines the very uh, hedonistic idea that we all, all that we want is to enjoy. You know, all that we want is to have pleasure, but to enjoy is something uh, more and it goes far beyond, yeah. very often, far, far beyond the, the, the pleasure principle. So, okay. <laughs> Alenka, um, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you, Alenka. It was um, great having you on. And um, I've been speaking with Alenka Zupancic about her book, her excellent book, uh, which I recommend everybody buy immediately. What is Sex? MIT Press 2017. Thanks again. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Till next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>